Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome back to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. In this episode, I have the opportunity to sit down with Mick O'Mara, and we talk about his multiple journeys around Ireland, most recently in 2015 when he here circumnavigated the island in just 23 days. We also talk about his thoughts on preparation and training, keys to a successful expedition, whether you're solo or as part of a team, and maintaining a true sense of adventure along the way. Mick is really a testament to the benefits of working hard to reach your goals, and you're really going to enjoy my time with Mick. So enjoy today's episode with Mick O'Mara. Hi, Mick. How are you today? Good, John. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. So, Mick, tell us, where are you from? From Waterford, Ireland. I've lived here all my life. I never felt the need to move away. So I was just born in the city here. I come from a family with just myself, two sisters, mom and dad. And yeah, that's it. From right. Waterford, Ireland. All right. So how did you get your start as a paddler? I started off uh, paddling. Uh, through the scouts and it was I suppose most people most people will will have a go at being in the scouts at some stage and we were lucky enough that there was a, a Christian brother actually who, who taught at a local school he was into kayaking and he had a trailer with a couple of kayaks on it so he came along to one uh, of the scout camps and we had an opportunity to try it there because I suppose back god I, I hate to think of how long I'm paddling now but um it's probably about 40 years at this stage and slightly more. It was a difficult thing to get a go on a kayak, whereas now there's kayaks everywhere. Um, so it was a great opportunity. And I just loved it from the time from the time I got into it. I, I always liked water sports. and I, I did a little bit of athletics before that when I was younger. But as soon as I got into kayaking, I just thought, this is, you know, this is the best thing ever. So did you start on uh, rivers, uh, in, inland lakes? Where How did you get your start there? The first we started was we there was a couple of kayaks up the back of a monastery up in Mount Mellory in County Waterford, believe it or not, a Cistercian uh, commune there. And there was a reservoir there. We used to pull the kayaks, these two kayaks out onto this reservoir that was so cold. We'd sort of just paddle around for a bit there. Then we started doing a little bit on lakes. And one of the scout camps that we we were on, we were just learning skills and we did a little bit of a bank slide. It was a sort of a steep bank coming down into the lake. And this is the best thing ever was to sit into the kayak at the top of this kind of a bank and slide down into, into the water. And I can still remember, John, my first capsize. And I'll never forget how still and how quiet it got. And then all of a sudden thinking, oh, no you're underwater and it's only you are going to get yourself out of this, you know, and it was just, the, it was just that calmness that still, and, and that's how I started. So we started there. Then we started moving on to maybe some of the rivers, um, the river Barrow, which is not too far from where I am um, here in Waterford, shooting a few weirs. And I mean, at that stage, Oh, I don't think there was even plastics out there. The dancer wasn't even invented. You know, the plastic hadn't been, hadn't hit the kayaking world. So everything was in fiberglass. So you were always trying to have, kind of take care of your boat. So, so no one was running a lot of these sort of, you know, rocky rivers and stuff like that because your boat was just going to get wrecked. But we started from there and then progressed on. A lot of the way that I, I came into sea kayaking is the fact that 
we have the Atlantic Ocean pretty much on our doorstep here down in, in Waterford as well. So you're not waiting for water to be on rivers and stuff and waiting for flood and waiting for the rain. The sea is just outside there. So it was actually quite easy to get into that as well. So I suppose in the early days of the paddling, I was more, I was kind of into kind of everything. Bit of racing, bit of sea kayaking, bit of river kayaking. You know, that's the way it was here. So what got you interested in going fast? God, I always kind of wonder what is fast. I wouldn't be certainly the fastest paddler around the place, John. But in, in I suppose in the early days, I got into a little bit of racing. Through contact with, with other people, I like the idea of being able to push yourself. I like the idea of being able to kind of go fast in a kayak down a river or on the sea. I kind of got the bug for racing. And at the time, it was sort of open singles racing. So they'd have a kind of an open class for general purpose kayaks. You start into that. And then I got into a little bit of white water racing. So you're doing the, you're using the down river boat. And then from that, you move on to a bit of K1. And then you move into K2. And then you start looking to maybe go fast on the sea. You know, you just kind of transfer that sort of, I won't say a need, but that, that buzz you get from actually pushing yourself. You can kind of, you can branch into any of the areas of kayaking and, and transfer that. So speaking of pushing yourself, uh, so that kind of transitions us is you've circumnavigated Ireland twice, once in 1990 with a four-person team and then yeah. and, uh, and then a second time setting a, the speed record around Ireland at, at a blistering 23 days solo. So let's start with the experience of paddling around Ireland and uh, and I'd like to compare the two trips. Uh, take us take our listeners on a tour around Ireland by kayak. What's that experience like? <laughs> it's an amazing country here, John. And I suppose one of the reasons I never really went too many or too far away is that Ireland has everything you'd want. It's a great place and it has all the weathers. It can be fantastic. It can be lovely and warm and sunny. And then it can be just stormy and cold as well, like we have. But I'll tell you, I'll go back to the trip in 1990 when we went around. I Through the scouts, I met a few guys that I still paddle with today. A lot of my close friends and we were from down here and we sort of started paddling together up and down the coastline we have the river shore here the estuary we would have you know paddled from waterford down to tremor quite a bit here it's a kind of a 25 mile paddle so we started pushing kind of longer distances and we were well able for that and then a few one of us <laughs> i think brian i think was first of all brian fanning got a sea kayak and this is a great thing altogether because we went from using kind of general purpose 13 foot fiberglass boats paddling out to islands and stuff like that to actually getting into a proper sea kite that didn't leak and actually had hatches in it. Somebody, I think we eventually bought a VHF radio. I mean, this is going back now, John, in a time when, you know, everybody has loads of money now and everybody has everything. But at the time, you know, a VHF was a real luxury. We decided we'd have a go at going around Ireland. And sure, this was a great adventure altogether because we wouldn't have been what you'd call the classic sea kayakers with all the gear and all the safety and all the knowledge. We It was more adventure, I think, we had in us and, and, and you know, the, the willingness to go out and kind of have a go and have a bit of crack at it as well, you know. So off we went, I think it was on 28th of April, 1990. We had all got our hands on sea kayaks at this stage. I think it was a kind of a version of NordCap we had at the time. Arrived down at the pier in Tremor with way too much gear. Kayak was completely packed. Half your gear was still at the side, wondering how you were ever going to get this stuff into the hatch. <laughs> anyway, we had, and we had jeans and we had shirts, as we call them, disco clothes. So we were ready to party like the whole way around. We had all this kind of stuff. But look, do you know what? Off we went. Four of us took off. And sure, 
We made it down to Yall the first day. We went off the next day, packed up again. Off we went and did another kind of, we're aiming for kind of 30, 35 miles a day or whatever, whatever you could manage. We just saw it as a series of day paddles. And before you knew, John, you know, you're down the southwest, you move on. And I mean, some days you have a reasonable day. Some days you'll have a headwind. And some days it's going to be raining. And some days it's going to be sunny. That's the way it goes with expedition paddling. But I think our experience through the scouts and stuff like that and just camping in general kind of gets you through that. Because when you do long trips like that, it's not just about paddling. It's about being able to get off the water and operate as a team as well. You've got to cook your dinner. You've got to be able to pitch your tent. You've got to be able to look after yourself and get get on the water again. And it, uh, to me, in expeditions, the paddling is almost the easy bit. Because when you're out there, you're doing what you're naturally good at. But the other stuff is hard, getting up in the morning. So when you have a team going around, and this is why our team worked so well back in 1990, is that, you know, not everyone was the best paddler. But as a team, you work well together because someone had to get you out and kick you up out of bed in the morning. Someone had to do the cooking. Someone had to be able to break camp and, and do stuff like that. So we eventually got around, I think it was in 33 paddling days. And we had a few days off and we had a couple of points every night. It was that sort of a trip. It was great, great fun. And we got back and we all survived it, which is the good thing. <laughs> because there was no major, <laughs> you know, right, John, there was no major calamities along the way. We busted a set of paddles. We dropped a boat on a set of paddles, I think it was, up in Kilkee or something like that. And we had a couple of rough days. We had to take a day off, one or two days off when we hit northerly winds on the West Coast. But overall, it was a fantastic adventure. And then, kind of from that trip around, we decided to go off to Iceland. Again, we swim on a Wednesday night at the local pool here, and we planned this. We said, God, that'd be a great old place to go to. And we didn't know how we were going to get there. So it turns out that one of the guys, Fergus, his sister worked for a, a shipping company here. And we kind of realized that we could actually get boats up there. So that was the first thing. And then we decided, listen, we'll have a go again, saved a few bob, got a bit of money together, and off we went up there. And we got around most of the coast of Iceland, but we, we ran out of time. So we got from, we, we we went from Reykjavik right up around the top in a, in a clockwise direction, finished off in the place in Hope, I think they call it, um, uh, down the southeast coast. And we shipped the boats home. I mean, I wasn't going to sort of go along the, the south coast and have to bail out there or leave all my gear there, you know. Mm -hmm. So we kind of pulled out in a logical place up there. But it was a great adventure as well. And it was that sense of adventure that kind of kept us going. And then you talk about the Ireland trip then that I did in, in, in when you come back and do this in 2015. I had gone through a couple of Irish sea crossings in the meantime. with me a good paddling buddy, Brian Fanny here, a fantastic paddler as well. And I think I've been across the Irish Sea at this stage. I think seven times I've crossed at this stage in a kayak. Done the routes to, down here from Rosslear to Fishguard a couple of times. Crossed the Hollyhead and done the North, the North Channel crossing as well from, from Donegadee, which is near Belfast, over to... Port Patrick in Scotland. And so I always had that thirst for sort of just pushing yourself and just, just training. It's an excuse to train as well. And you're not looking for any sort of, I don't know what it is, are you actually kind of searching for in yourself? It's probably, it's probably trying to be the best you can be. And when you do these crossings, you always get this great sense of achievement that, geez, I've actually stepped into a kayak in Ireland. And here I am in England <laughs> yeah. after coming here by kayak, you know? And it's funny, when you land on the beach over across there, <laughs> nobody knows you've come from Ireland. They probably think you've just come around the corner, you know, and you're after doing kind of 50 miles uh, over the last nine or 10 hours or whatever. And it's a great sense of satisfaction. So uh, look, over the years then, I had kids, 
and I wanted to do something. In uh, and, uh, in 2015, just turned, turned to be the year. Actually, Jeff Allen, who you'd met there, Jeff and Harry went around and sort of made a story out of, let's say, our record. We had a record. We were the only ones who were after really doing it, I think, in a long time, back in 1990. And we did it in 33 days, which is a reasonable time. And it was, and you got to be lucky with the weather, John. Sure. So Jeff and Harry then made a big, they kind of made a story out of it going, we're all going after Mick O'Mara's record and we're going to try and break the record. But we never saw it as a record. I mean, geez, if you just go out and do a paddle, unless you start going on about a record, we never called it a record. But it was the fastest probably time that anyone had done it in. So that's fair enough. So the lads did it in the turns, which I was looking at at the time because I was paddling a Nigel Foster legend, which I still have. And Nigel Foster is over your way in the last few years, but he designed this fantastic, I think it was a Vinec he designed first of all, and then a legend. And I think there's another one, a Silhouette. And there were kind of three similar boats, but fantastic kayak. But I kind of saw these new boats that were coming out and I saw, I wanted to have a go. So anyway, Jeff and Harry did that. They finished up in Ardmore, the trip. They did it, I think it was in 25 days. Harry phoned me, he said, Mick, can we come down and stay with you tonight? We're on our way back to the UK. I said, yeah. So the lads came down. We had a mighty session, a load of drink, great crack. <laughs> and a load of lies being told, <laughs> tall tales, we might say. But when the guys did that, that sort of said to me, you know what? I'm going to have a go at this because after after paddling over the years and doing, let's say, the devices to Westminster with Jim Morrissey and stuff, and we were, we were successful in that over a couple of years, I knew that I could do better than 33 days. And I knew that the lads kind of were, they'd put it out there now at this stage, that this was a time up for grabs, 25 days, this is the record. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to have a go at this at some stage. So in the meantime, I have back problems, thanks to my mother. I've, uh, as they call it, degenerative disc disease, which basically means that I have no discs in the first kind of few lumbar vertebrae in my back. And my back was giving me hassle and it was getting painful to paddle. I thought, oh no, is this it? Like, you know what I mean? Is this going to happen to me every time I paddle now, get these bloody back problems, you know? So I went about it, got it sorted, got a nerve cut in my back where I don't really feel some of the pain. It was kind of bone rubbing on bone, you know? Sounds worse than it is but oh, it, it means that my, it sounds painful yeah and, and you know what i still have back pain every day john i get up every day and i have a stiff back and i got a stretch and stuff like that but I, do you know what it's better than what it was so i said there's no time like the present i'm going to go around ireland right <laughs> and, <laughs> and it also turns out i had support from my family and una was very good she said off you go i had three young kids at the time and i said look i'm going to try and do this and I'm going to have a go. And I said, my back pack up as well, because I always remember Sean Morley going around all the years ago. Yeah. And Sean was pushing hard. And he was I think he was up in Donegal one day. And he just knew his back was seasoned up. And he ended up completely crippled up there, where he had to go back down to Jim Morrissey's house and hang out there for about two weeks, I think it was, because he was destroyed. So I was always I was always kind of cognizant, if that's the word, um, that this kind of stuff can happen to you. So I didn't make a big deal about going on the trip. I trained hard for the thing, had got myself a turn, and I said, I said to my friends, look, lads, I'm going to have a go at this. Nobody was able to get off work at the time. That's the reason I did a solo. It's not that I really set out to do it solo. But I said, look, I'll have a go. If my backpack's up, come and get me. And we'll say nothing about it. And at least I would have tried it, you know. So I took off 
in June because I had a business at the time, sea paddling, which was basically kayak touring and stuff on the coast here, taking out beginners and stuff. And I said, look, I can't be gone in the middle of the summer at the high season. So I took off in early June. Weather still wasn't fantastic, but I went off and did it. I had a kind of a rough schedule. I thought, look, if I can do this, I'll get around in 20 something days. And that was the plan. So I went away and the first two, three days, they were hard. But I got, I was able to get into the boat the next day. And then four days later, I was down in Valencia and I thought, do you know what? I'll give it a go for another few days now, see how I go. And then next minute, over to Shannon, up the West Coast. Then I kind of thought, gee, Mac, I'm going well here and the back is holding up. So all the way around, and I got around in 23 days. I was delighted with that, John, because it was, it was something I wanted, I set out to do. And at least I got over the, the, the finish line. Because I say to anybody about, you know, when it comes to racing or expeditions or any of that kind of a thing, you've got to be able to cross the line, first of all, before you can start talking about times and all this kind of carry on. Because you have to survive the course. And at that time in 2015, the weather was basically brutal here. For summer. I mean, look, it wasn't winter storms. You can't go out that at all. But for summer weather, I thought, oh, come on, you know. <laughs> I mean, I didn't one day, John, in the 23 days paddling a T-shirt. That's how bad it was. Wow. And it was just cold and it was just miserable. And it was wet the whole way up the West Coast. I think this is, Joe Leach was out on the course at the same time. Joe is, is, is a lad over and he was having a go. And I mean, he was out there in the same conditions. It was just hard the whole time. But it was great to get it done. And then coming down the East Coast, look, at that stage, I thought, look, I'm on, it's a reasonably good, I'm, I'm on for a reasonably good time around the place. But the weather went against me. And some days I thought, the wind is on my nose. It's not just slightly off to my nose. It's actually 12 o'clock coming straight at me. And I seemed to be like that nearly every day. And there was a huge depression in the Atlantic at the time <laughs> coming down. And I thought, I'll get onto the East Coast now. And I'm in off the Atlantic now. And I'm kind of OK. At least I'm away from the West Coast. And this thing pushed southerlies up into me the whole way down. I'll never forget it. Where you were supposed to be coming down and taking it relatively, I won't say relatively easy, it was the hardest paddling because it was just a pure slog, like eight or nine hours a day into that, you know? Mm. This is why I like, uh, I love the idea of the Irish trip, is that you've got the challenge of the Atlantic there. And the thing with the Atlantic and the thing with weather is that you just never know what's going to happen, right? Unless it's a really settled kind of a period of weather you're in. So when you're out there, you're fairly exposed to anything that can come across. You know, sometimes in the summertime, you just get a pattern of low pressure coming across on a conveyor belt, depending on where the, the jet stream is, just coming in one after another and after another and after another, you know? So you have that sort of uncertainty to deal with so no matter how fit you are and how well prepared you are there's always that key variable there and that's the bloody weather always pieces you can't control this is it and you know you could be half fit and you could do a great time around ireland and you could be fit as a fiddle if that weather decides you're not going to do it you're not going to do it and and that's the that's the beauty about the irish coastline and also john like when you go out depends on what day you go out the coastline looks different every day. I mean, you could paddle around Ireland a hundred times and it would look different to you the hundred times you do it. Because whether the sun is shining or the tide is in or out or what way the wind is blowing or the temperature, it kind of takes on, you know, it has a different character every day that you you go up and down that coastline. So aside from the weather, um, what were your biggest challenges on that solo? I'd say for anyone, look, the weather is, I think your own head, I think your own 
your own confidence. I know myself, I suppose, enough at this stage to know what I can do, what I can't do. But it's a, it, the difficult thing I think about solo paddling is that you have to ask the questions, but you are the one who has to come up with the answers to the questions as well. So you don't have any buddies there. And so you have this always, this will I, won't I? Will I go, won't I go? You get up in the morning time, you look at the sea, you think, okay, will I, won't I? And, you know, you can prepare all you want, John. You can get all the gear you want. You can have all the stuff, all the preparation, the whole world done here. But you have to have the confidence then to actually execute this and go and do it. And there were some days there when you wake up and, you know, the tent is flapping. You wake up, you think, oh, no. And then you have this whole will I, won't I? And even though you're getting ready and you're packing up the tent, you know what I mean? You're still kind of thinking. You're almost afraid to look out at the sea because you're thinking, you know what? Should I be doing this? Shouldn't I? Because when you are on your own, you are on your own. That's it. And look, you can carry a VHF with you. You can carry a, a, a personal locator beacon and all that kind of stuff. But you can't really put your, your safety into somebody else's hands and think, ah, look, sure, I'll be grand. I'll just call up the Coast Guard because sometimes... Your EPIRB might fail, they do, it happens, and your VHF might fail, and nobody might see a flare, and you don't want to be out there then on your own, when you can't get back in your kayak or something like that, hoping for the best that uh, a fishing boat will come by or something like that. So they're the big challenges, I think, on the thing, you know, is, is just basically having the, the mental toughness, I think it is, to, to not only paddle every day, but also then to get in and cook for yourself, camp out, and take it on the next day again, and then do that day after day after day, you know. Were there any points along the way where you lost that confidence? Um, no. But there was days when I thought, I shouldn't be out in this. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You kind of end up you end up in a day and you kind of think, oh, gee, like, why did I do this? <laughs> and, and because so you're on the edge, and especially when the weather is not great, John, there are the days that you're kind of thinking, you know, should I be at, at this carry-on? You know, and then you're thinking about your kids and every now and again, you feel this this wave of upset coming at you out of the blue. And you, uh, and you realise that this is fear coming up to try and kind of challenge you. But, you, but there's no time for fear. You know, I, I've heard of rock climbers talking. Uh, there was one guy commentating on somebody climbing up that. Is it that El Capitan? Is it the one that, the famous one? And he said that, you haven't got time to deal with fear. you just got to pack it away and get on with the job. You can talk, think about it later on. And that's the way it was some days. Because if you start thinking about that then, you'll start making mistakes. You'll, you know, you'll, you'll lose it then. And you'll start getting stiff. You'll lock up. And, you, and, and, and that's when, if you, if you think you'll fall in a lot of the time, you actually will fall in. <laughs> I say that to beginners at the time. Like, don't actually, don't think about falling in. So, yeah, um, there was, uh, I suppose, one day I was after getting down to Dorsey. It was only on about the fourth day or the fifth day down the west coast there. And I had the morning session. It was okay. The wind had come up then. And I got on the water and I paddled out a gap between Dorsey Island and the mainland. And I was gone about a mile or two miles. And the boat, I was into a headwind. And the boat was up and down, banging and slapping. And I just said to myself, this is ridiculous. Like, I... Uh, I shouldn't be out this. This is just stupid now. And it's really kind of taking a risk. And I said to my own mind, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do another mile here or whatever. And I'm going to see how it goes. And as I got further along, 
I suppose I just started getting used to the conditions and I realized that they were what they were and they weren't really going to get any worse. So I kept going. But you do have those times, John, you know what I mean, where, you know, you, you kind of think twice about what you're at. So did you have any off-water days for that trip? I had two. I had two up Redditch across Donegal Bay. The wind had been just, ah, oh, just, the weather had been just terrible the whole way up the West Coast. Terrible in the sense that, look, I could still paddle. It wasn't that, I mean, it's not like it, it's it's a winter storm which you can't go out in. But fog and just mist and stuff like that. And the, the day before I was getting ready to do Donegal Bay, I paddled till about half past 10 the night before in fog all day. Got up the next morning at half past five to get on the water for about seven o'clock because I knew that there was a weather front coming in and the wind was going to kind of veer around from southwest to west and it was actually coming up to about a force five, maybe a force six. And I thought, okay, if I get up around Erris Head, which is quite an exposed headland in, in, in on the Irish paddle here, it's a place you don't want to kind of get stuck up there because there's nothing there. If I get up around there, when the wind veers, at least it might be behind me a bit more. So, you know, you, you get up around there, crossed Eris there, really, really, you know, the conditions were just getting windier and windier and windier. And I eventually got across and I kind of got in behind a cliff and I just had to sit there for a few minutes and think, Ginny, Mike, like, what am I at? <laughs> and on the way down to a place called Bally Castle, I saw a water spout, John. I mean, I was so kind of, you know, you'd be so... It's like you'd be bewildered with the weather. It's so bad at you. You know, you're just getting battered by this, and you're constantly you're on high alert the whole time. You know, one eye on the water, one eye on the cliff, thinking, "Listen, I can't, I can't actually go in here. This is just, this just not an option to capsize here." But there was a water, and I saw this kind of a whirl. It was probably just a kind of an eddy coming off the thing, but it actually lifted water off the sea like a, like a tornado. And I thought, I don't believe what I'm seeing here. <laughs> it's the wind actually that strong, you know? So got down and I said to myself, look, the wind was getting out of hand the next day. And I said, look, I'm going to go down to Ballycastle here and I'm going to just basically take the day off tomorrow because I knew I was going to be forced off the water. But that day turned into two days because the wind was kind of then gone back northwest again. And I was heading or, or northerly. I was heading off over to Donegal. So on the third, on the, on the, on the two days later, I got up at five o'clock in the morning and I went across Donegal Bay. I crossed that first one, nearly 40 miles. And then I, in the afternoon, I did another about 20 up to Aaron Moore. So that was about a hundred kilometer day. And that was the biggest day I think I put in the trip, but there was a lot of anger there. I was stuck for two days. I was like, <laughs> I was, I was just, you know, I was ready to go at that stage again. Yeah. So what was your favorite part of that trip? Do you know what? Getting home. <laughs> I was, I was re well, do you know what? Realistically, I suppose it was getting home and it was getting home to see the kids uh, and, and getting home to see the family. It was great to come in because, you know what? When it's 23, 25, 30 days, you kind of have enough of the sea as well. And actually, that was that was the best day in one way because I was kind of finished and I knew I had made it at that stage. But getting off the water every day, John, is the best part as well because even though you love paddling, once you've put in nine hours or eight hours or nine hours or even 10 hours on the day, it's nice to pull the kayak up the beach and go, right, see you. I don't want to see you tomorrow. <laughs> and put your clothes on you, get warm and get ready for a nice, nice sleep. You know what I mean? So so that for me are the favorite parts. And also, look, the coastline is amazing here as well. So, I mean, you know, when you ask about favorite parts of the trip, it's obviously going to be the days that the weather is better and that you'd have a calm sea 
and you'll have a blue sky and you'll see some wildlife and you can paddle without wearing a cag and stuff like that the whole time. I mean, they're the best days. But unfortunately, on that trip like that, as I said to you, I, I brought along, I have a coca tat, a touring jacket there. And I said, I'll take it with me just in case. <laughs> and, I had, and I had a pair of salad pets as well that I got off. In fairness to Jeff Allen, he gave them to me the time he was here. Um, and I wore those a lot more than I thought I was going to. <laughs> and, and I was glad of them. So if we compare that, uh, the solo trip to your team trip, what challenges did you face as a team? Team trips, John. I, the nice thing about teams is that you have company there. And you have extra people lifting boats and you have more people there if something goes wrong and you just have it just means you have people around you it's good fun and we were lucky in one way that we had known each other so long that we knew look we knew each other and we knew that i mean as i say to people if you're ever picking somebody to go paddling with on a thing just get to know them when they're cold and they're tired and they're hungry and you see the you see the other side of a lot of people like that. And what you don't want in a trip is somebody that's going to flip out when this happens because sometimes it's just going to happen. You you're going to get cold. The weather is going to do something unexpectedly. You're not going to have the food, or somebody's going to forget something, or the food is buried down the back of the hatch, or something like that. And you're going to have off days as well. And what you don't want is somebody completely freaking out when that happens because that's no good for anybody. So you'd want to pick your team members. Like everybody has their own skills as well, but you're, you're, the temperament is very important. And I say anybody that goes off on any expedition with anyone, whether you're mountaineering or whether you're hiking or whether you're kayaking or biking or whatever, that's an important thing. So the difference with that was that, yeah, but you don't have control of yourself as well. So if you want to take off like a hare someday, you got to think it's not, it's not you. You have to think of the team here. So the team is, you know, is as weak as the weakest link. Okay, so you're going to have some days, you're going to have some of the team that are faster paddlers than other. But then those other people that might be the fastest paddlers could be the people that actually hold this thing together, maybe through good humor or that they're better at camping skills or that they're, they're just more level-headed and stuff like that. So it's important that your team has that balance of skills um, or has that kind of full complement of skills. And it doesn't necessarily, everybody doesn't have to have the exactly same the exact same skill set for example but as long as you as a team perform together that's what it is and and so the and, and again the team look if you're having a really bad day some days your mind can start playing games on you it's just nice to be able to bounce stuff off of somebody else or have a give out about the weather and curse the weather with somebody else rather than you doing it to yourself the whole time and that's the difference in solo stuff is that you're there on your own you're 100% responsible for what happens because there's nobody else there to, to kind of take you out of a situation. And that's why I think the stakes are high and you have to be kind of more careful. You have to be better prepared. You have to be better physical shape. you got to have your homework done in terms of navigation and kind of all that kind of a thing because there's no one there to say, hey, I forgot to check the map. Did you have a look at that last night? That's not there. And then, John, you know, the other thing about it is that people say to me, like, would you not be lonely on... on, on uh, on solo paddles and stuff like that but I'm happy in my own company I'm not a loner and it's not that I dislike people but I'm okay if you said to me listen you got to spend a week on your own on some island I kind of go okay <laughs> that's all right <laughs> that's quite it's not quite utopia but uh, I wouldn't mind it you know whereas others need they need social contact the whole time so I think you have to have 
to have a personality that kind of lends itself to that kind of solo stuff as well. And I can paddle on my own. I paddle with the lads down here a bit, but I can go off training myself as well. And I can do a three-hour paddling session. I don't even think about what am I going to think about for three hours. I don't know what I think about. I sometimes just go into maybe a bit of an old daydream. And that allows you to do solo stuff like that. So it's not about just the skill. It's about having the head to be able to say, hey, can I do this on my own here 20 days in a row or 25 days in a row without anybody else around me, you know? Excellent advice. So the, the, let's get to the question that our listeners really want to know, which is you mentioned the first one. You had a number of pints along the way. So doing a 23-day speed record around the <laughs> island, did you have a chance to get a few pints in? You know what? The first day I came down, uh, I took off. And, you know, I was a bit upset taken off as well because I, I, it wasn't the intention to do it solo. But I thought, look, you don't know. There's too many people, John, having things hitting them and too many people getting sick and too many people getting bad news. So you don't know what's around the corner. And I just said to myself, look, I've got the opportunity to do this. I was going to start a PhD. I'd been accepted on a, to do a PhD by the supervisor literally the night before I took off. And I knew that for the next four years, I was going to be stuck into studies and stuff like that. So I thought, you know what? Sometimes, you know, if the opportunity is there, just take it and go because you don't know when the opportunity will come again. But I took off anyway, went off on my own. Kids were on the beach waving them off. I was, I was really upset, you know, just for the first couple of minutes going off because I thought, Jesus, I'm going off my own. This is kind of nuts. Um, what am I doing? <laughs> All this kind of stuff is going through your head, even though you know exactly what you're going to do, but you have that. So got down to uh, Ballycotton the first day after having the most bumpy weather. It was crazy even the first day. It was like the first day I set the scene for the rest of the trip. Just this, uh, you know, just this real bouncy sea and stuff like that. But that night I ended up in Ballycotton. I thought, sure, look, I'll sneak up for a quick point. <laughs> so that was one. <laughs> and then I met uh, two lads, Andy and Jeff, who were paddling around. They took off a bit ahead of me. And when I came into Brandon uh, down on the West Coast, I didn't know the guys were going to be there. I came around the corner, pulled into this small pier, and here there was two sea kayaks there, two Inuks there. The guys had been in Tremor a few days beforehand or maybe a week beforehand. So I had one or two there, and that was about the end of it then. <laughs> no more then and it wasn't because I didn't want any it was that busy I didn't get the opportunity <laughs> <laughs> so did, did you get a chance to see the family along the way at all no okay no and it was easier for me and, and actually you know John, meeting people I don't know it's kind of does it upset the the kind of rhythm you have doing the solo and funnily again not to be talking too much about mentioning sean morley's name but sean did that trip around uh, the coast uh, ireland england there years ago and i remember i sent sean uh, an email or something and i said listen sean hey give us a shout when you're in tremor here you know down this neck of the woods when he was passing by and he sent a mail i think it was a couple of days later he said look Nick, sorry to miss you but he said look i was just basically in the groove he said I think that's what he, he said to me, or he wrote something, and I kind of fully got it. Because he was just, it just probably didn't suit him. He probably got in late. He just wanted to put his tent up. He wanted to get up and get his breakfast the next day, and he wanted to just move on. And he didn't want all the kind of the hullabaloo that goes with meeting people and stuff like that, you know? So, no, I didn't I didn't meet anybody along the way, no. I picked up food. I picked up food. I had sent, I think it was two parcels of food along the way, and I picked those up. 
because you can't carry all your stuff, John, in 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 a kayak. Well, look, if you have a huge kayak, yeah. but but I think food dumps or I think food pickups, I think are are acceptable as long as you're not meeting somebody every day, you know. Because again, then it gets into is this a solo trip or are you being supported by people meeting every day? Um, right. So I decided that I was taking pretty much eight days food with me, and I said, look, I'll take six days and two days just just in case, and that's what I basically carried. And then I was self-sufficient. But if you have your gear with you, then all you're really picking up is a bit of stuff. In it. Look, you might come along the island or you come into a local community or just along the way, pull into a pier. If there's a little shop there, you can go up and get yourself a slice uh, pan of bread or stuff like that and pick up little bits like that. So you're going to be self-sufficient like that. Um, and the rest of it then was really getting your hands on water. Water is the heaviest thing. So you're going to pick up a few litres of that every day as you go along, you know. I see. So what recommendations would you have for others who have their sights set on a big circumnavigation? What advice? Uh, are we talking about solo or a group? Um, um, let, let's go solo. <laughs> well, you know, the solo thing, I, I think the solo thing is absolutely doable, but it's not good for people who like the company of others because it is. it can be lonely and it is lonely because you don't know where you're going to end up. And many a night I camped out and there was nobody around. So you're, it's just you and your tent. And you're sitting there and it's only really you and your thoughts. So that'd be the first thing I'd say, because I think people don't think of it that way. They'll have all the gear, they'll do all the prep, but you have to think about how you deal with this. How's your head going to deal with this? And are you going to be okay? Especially after having a rough day on the sea. So look, and, all, and also I suppose the thing, the real thing about solo is that you have to have the answer to everything. So there's no one there to pull you out. There's no one there to give you a plaster if you forgot your first aid kit. There's no one there to supply you with food. You have to be self-sufficient, which means that you have to be clued in enough to be fit enough to do this, to be good enough, and be smart enough to actually think it out and be kind of prepared for every eventuality, really. Because again, you're on your own. And I think... If you think about that and you prepare properly, I think anyone can execute a solo trip. Again, you know, you, you have to look at where you're going and are you good enough a paddler to handle it? Is your boat good enough? Is your fitness good enough? Are your preparations good enough? And have you got enough supplies and stuff like that to do it? But if you prepare, of course you can do it. You know, team stuff, I'd say, I'd say the advice I would say to anybody about team stuff, John, is that make sure you know who you're going with because you think you know people you might have paddled with them do an hour paddle a two hour paddle here and there met them for a weekend and stuff like that went out and had a few beers that's not the person you're going to see on day seven or day eight or day ten of a trip when the weather's been crappy it's been raining you haven't food you haven't had a pint in a while you're just living in, you know, you're living in this kind of an old, you know, this old, old miserable conditions. That's where people kind of, that's where you have to be careful that people don't kind of lose the plot and everyone, and a big row breaks out because that's what can wreck a trip on you. And then, you know, also if you're putting a team together, I would say that make sure that the team have the necessary skills to, to carry out the trip. So again, it's not about picking the four fastest paddlers or five, or however many, or, or the four slowest paddlers, or the four best people that are cooks. But make sure that you have the range of skills between you that you can actually do what needs to be done 
on a daily basis and that you have a kind of a an easy going approach to stuff because if you go out there with a kind of a if you go out there uh, and you can't accept that the weather has gone against you and that you didn't get the 30 miles in that you were supposed to have got in today you know you have to be able to just accept stuff as it happens on a trip and if and, and accept the good stuff but accept the bad stuff as well if it happens and move on tomorrow's another day and you can kind of restart again you know so what's next for you from a paddling perspective? <laughs> well, it'd be nice to be able to get out in the water here at the moment. Yeah. Um, do you know what? So I trained last year. I trained really hard because I was, I'd finished a PhD and I spent a lot of time sitting down in the last four years, even in the summer. So I was up to get a new boat. Of a, I'm paddling a Nino Ultra at the moment, which is the brand new design out from Rob Feli, made by Curtin Kayaks there in the UK. And the Ultra is the new version of the classic Inuk that you might be familiar with. But this is 20 feet long, mm. super gear carrier, fantastically stable and, and a great cruising boat, really moves well on the water. So last year, I wanted to just get fit again and I wanted to do something. I thought, look, will I do a crossing? Round Ireland wasn't really an option at the time, you know what I mean? Um, but I said I'll do something else. So I had a look at uh, paddling around Ackle Island, and Ackle Island is um, is, a, is, a, is a forty is a forty mile route up up the northwest of Ireland there. So I had my sights set on that all summer, and I eventually got to do it on the eighteenth of October last year because the weather was pretty flaky all summer here. And I thought, look, Ackle is someplace that you're not going to go out there because it's about as west of Ireland as it's going as you're going to get. But I had a go at that and I took it on. And even though the weather was cold and it was it, the, the evenings were closing in and stuff like that, I did that 40 miles, knocked it out in six hours and six minutes and um, thought to myself, OK, I can still do this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was kind of to prove to myself, you know, that, that I could kind of get myself back fit again it, 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 with a view that I might take on the Ireland trip again because I thought the last time I didn't set out last time to break records. I set out to seek it if I could do it because my back had been so bad, John, you know? And I went from a point a few months before I did the learning trip of like, every time I pull on the paddle on my right hand side, I'm going to get a twinge in my back. That's the way I was. And I thought, oh no, don't tell me, you know, don't tell me I'm done. I could still paddle, but when I wanted to put a bit of anger into the paddles, it was just hurting me too much, you know? And then I, w I took off on the trip to complete it really. And I was lucky enough to do a fast time. Now, I still had to paddle hard on stuff like that. But I think if I was going to do it again, I might think about actually going out to try and see could I take a few days off at that time. So I'd like to do that. I don't know if I'm going to get the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got a family and stuff like that. But, but you know what? I'll start training for it. You know, I'm fairly fit. I'm okay at the moment and stuff like that. And I might start putting in a few long paddles. And again, if the opportunity arises, then I'd be ready. Because Curtin across in the UK there now, Rob Feli is, is designing another new boat because the Inuk Ultra is just that bit long. It's 20 feet long. Some people don't like the idea of a 20 foot sea kayak. It's just they can't get their heads around it. You know, it needs to be kind of 18 feet. So he's developing and we're collaborating a bit on it, of developing a new sea, a new kind of fast sea kayak that's going to be kind of out there with the lake of the tarn and stuff like that. And if that's ready, 
I might have a go on that. So you'd never know what would happen this year, maybe June, July, you know, but it's only if I get the opportunity, John, anything can happen in the meantime, you know? Well, that's, uh, that's certainly interesting. We'll, uh, we'll have to watch for that development possibly in the future. It could happen, you know. I mean, look, I'm the coastline around here is great, and I, and I, just, I just, I love paddling, John, same as anybody. And the lovely thing about being living here, where I am in Tremor here in, in Waterford, is that the sea is only two miles away from me, even less than that. And I can get a kayak on the roof, get on the water, get an hour-long paddle in, or maybe do a few intervals or do whatever out there to keep it interesting, and come home again. So the whole thing takes an hour and a half, you know. So I'm blessed in a way that we have that here. So I'm able to train and we'll keep training. And then, you know, look, if you get yourself fit and in terms of if family allows me to do it, if things are right and if the weather is right, you could just decide, listen, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take a go at this again and uh, maybe spend two and a half weeks or whatever, whatever length of time is going to take and give it a go, you know. So tell us about the kit that you use for your trips. The boat I use, I mean, for Iceland, we went off to Iceland. Uh, we initially had paddled an Ord cap, then I moved on to a Nigel Foster legend, which I've had for years and years. Went on to a Tarn, and I have the Ultra at the moment, the Inuk Ultra. As I like the idea of boat design pushing on you, I just look around at the manufacturers and stuff like that, and there's so many manufacturers out there. And all they're doing is creating the same version of the same old designs that are sitting there for the last 40 years. So it's a high volume version or a middle volume or a short version or a long version or a skinny version of the same bloody boat. So I like the idea that John Willisie went out and designed the turn. And that was a kind of a radical kind of a change. It's like the front of a whitewater racer onto the back of a sea kayak with that kind of skimmed off hull on the thing. But, you know, it's kind of, it's just pushing it on from the norm. And then with Rob doing the Ultra as well, and he also designed the Inuit Duo, which um, the two lads, Holly Hicks, and I forget the other man's name, came down from Greenland in. Oh, the Voyage yeah. of the Finn Men. George Bullard. And the, George, yeah. And, and sorry, yes. And I, <laughs> I hope George's not listening to this and he'll kill me for not remembering <laughs> his name. But, um, <laughs> but that... So, and that was Rob's boat as well. So I've got the single version of that boat that he has there. So I like the idea of that. And that's why I'm paddling the Ultra now is that I like the idea of this kind of like people trying to innovate, going out with, you know, taking on and bringing out these radical designs. That's what I have at the moment. So boat is most important. So when you ask me about kit, okay, you've got to have a kayak that's going to do the business for you. You've got to have a kayak that you can handle. And you've got to kind of have a kayak that you can handle in rough stuff. So all these boats, all these skinny boats and all these fancy surf skis, everybody likes the look of them when they're on the car. But you've got to be able to handle that in rough conditions or conditions that you're going to encounter out there. So I'm lucky enough, I came from a K1, a bit of a K2 background, so I've reasonable enough balance. I was able to paddle that boat. So your boat is one thing, it has to be able to do it, it has to be watertight, it has to be strong enough, it has to have enough volume to carry the gear. In terms then of, of paddles, I use a... I've been using carbon fiber wings for a long time. I mean, I moved to a wing paddle there years and years ago and I never look back, you know what I mean? And I have several sets of paddles there, anything from kind of marathon racing paddles up around kind of 800, 775, 800 square centimeters down to a kind of a, a kind of a medium blade, you know, something like the Epic, the small mid wing or something, uh, that kind of a thing. And again, you got to be able to use wing paddles, John, because the standard flat paddle is, is great. The wing paddle is really only good for one thing and that's going forwards. 
So you get a good, powerful forward stroke for things like sculling and supports and stuff like that. It's not as good as a flat paddle. So you got to be confident enough with that. So like, unless you're able to use a wing and give it time to learn it, stick with the flats if that's what you're doing, you know. And then as, as for other kind of kit, I would paddle a lot of time in just standard old thermal vests, you know. So I mean, there's so many brands out there, Heli Hansen and <laughs> any sort of any sort of thing like that. I don't use dry suits because they just get too hot. They're too cumbersome. I actually hate too much gear. I actually like the idea of just padding in a t-shirt and maybe some sort of a pair of, you know, shorts or whatever like that. I hate too much kit on me. I just feel totally restricted. But again, if I am going out into rough or stuff like that, I have, I got some coke that stuff. And I'm not sponsored by anybody, John. That's the other thing I'd say when I'm mentioning these names of things like that, I pay for everything I get. I've never got anything for free. Right. And I don't go kind of, go looking for gear and stuff like that. But I, I did, I look, I do look at Kolkata's stuff as being the best stuff out there. You know, the Gore-Tex, it, it is amazing stuff. And it's bloody expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we don't have too much of it here. But, um, and I'd use that and maybe a pair of Salopets. Standard enough spray deck, an ordinary neoprene spray deck. But that's the kind of the kit. And then when I'm camping out, I use a Hillybird tent. I mean, Hillyburg is, is great stuff. Again, it is ridiculous money, but it's worth it. And one of the things that I say, one of the things I say, John, is that, you know, for anybody on an expedition, if it all goes wrong, you need to have something to get into the nighttime where you can crawl in and be safe and be, and be okay. And, you know, this idea of bringing rubbish tents and things that are half fallen asunder and that are 25 years old and all that. I mean, for me now, that would crack me up completely. So I'd always make sure that I'd have a, a good tent. And there's plenty of lightweight stuff there, but a tent that's going to work and it's going to do the business for you and it's going to protect you. And also in terms of a good sleeping bag as well. So Western Mountaineer and again, you know, the, the, that stuff is really, really fantastic. It's over your neck of the woods there, but it works. And, you know, a jet boil cooker, I, I like the idea of, of Expedition Food. That's the brand I would use as well. Again, I don't get this for nothing. I'm only telling you what I use. But Expedition Food is freeze-dried stuff. So mm -hmm. it means that you can carry a good few dinners with you, and all you have to do is add water. And it means that you can move fast and you can move light. And you don't have to try and go to a shop and you're not looking for fresh vegetables and stuff like that, which takes, it's not so much the weight of it, it's the time it takes you to get it. So at least that if you have a lot of freeze-dried stuff with you and maybe kind of dry food, all you need to do is add water and you can keep moving. And then by using something like a jet boil, it's, it's instant. It happens fast. And it means that then you can spend less time eating and more time on the water or resting as well, you know? So no matter how light and fast you're trying to travel, what's the one piece of luxury kit that you have to take on your trips? Luxury? Do you know, I suppose my camping pillow, I'd say, if you want to, you know, if you want to talk about a piece of kit. Yeah. I mean, look, a few bars of chocolate, a few bits <laughs> of fruitcake is, 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 is always good. Lovely stuff like that. But if you're talking about a piece of gear, I mean, look, I'd see... I'd see camp. I'd see you know expedition as uh, there's kind of three parts of it. There's the paddling end of things. There's the sleeping end. Of, there's the eating end of things. That's the, that's all you got to think about really. And you've got to be comfortable. I mean, after have to put in a hard day underwater, you got to you got to sleep well too. But and I think a good pillow. I've got an inflatable pillow. I don't know who makes it. I think Exped. I think it is a little light little thing. And it's only something that's just blow up, but it's really nice and you get a good night's sleep on the thing. Yeah. So th that that would be one. 
I think anything, John, I think anything, John, that just helps you be efficient. And you have to take out, you know, you have to take a kind of a lean. I know we're almost kind of looking at taking this from a manufacturing uh, thing, (laughs) but you got to be lean and you have to look at stuff and think, okay, look, do I need to take all this stuff that I have? Do you really need it? If you don't, well, then don't take it with you. And anything that's in your boat or with you needs to be part of of the team. You know what I mean? It needs to be there for a reason and it needs to be good and it needs to work and it needs to do what it's supposed to do because you can't afford to have kind of rubbish with you and stuff that's going to let you down because a lot of the time you might be in a position just to walk down to the local shop. So you know what I mean? Your gas stove has to work and your cooking stuff has to work and your food has to work for you and you got to think about all this kind of thing and all your gear has to work for you and that allows you then to kind of get on with the job and not be relying or not be hoping for the best that the gear might just stay going or not stay going, you know? I have to agree with you on that uh, inflated, inflatable pillow. I can't tell you how many trips I'd done with uh, rolling up clothes and tucking them into a bag and using that as a pillow and other kinds of goofy scenarios. And then I decided yeah. I'd put the money down and bought an inflatable pillow and it changed my life. <laughs> I'm telling you, they're great. And, and, and you know, if that's what you need to do or you need to get out and spend something for a good camping mat, I mean, you know, it, it costs a lot of money. All this stuff, the term rest, and I think it's that, that Neo-Air things. You know, I don't have one of those. I have one of the lower-spec ones. But they're a lot of money. They might be $200. They might be 250 whatever they are. But you know something? If it means you're going to sleep well, get one. Just yeah. spend the money. Because it makes... Because when you've battered yourself all day and you've killed yourself out on the water, you need to get a good night's sleep. And there's nothing better than getting into your tent in the nighttime knowing that you're not going to wake up in a puddle of water in the morning and you're knowing that you're going to sleep well and knowing that you're going to wake up somewhere refreshed the next day to be at least to be able to take on the following day, you know. <laughs> so I would be, and I'm not a gear junkie, John. I wouldn't be one of these people now who would be kind of swapping and changing gear the whole time. But anything I would get, I would try and get the best that I could afford at the time and then mind it and look after it. And, you'll, and all this stuff, if you look after stuff, you'll have it for years. Oh, absolutely. Good gear that uh, you, you buy good gear and look after it. You're right. You'll have it forever. Yeah. I mean, a guy, I remember a guy was in the Scouts years ago and he gave me the best piece of advice for a tent. He said, there's two things he said, remember, key, you'll have a tent for a long time. He said, the first thing he said is always dry it out when you've used it. Don't ever put it away wet, he said. And the second thing he said is never loan it to anybody. <laughs> and he said, that's how your tent, and <laughs> that's how you'll have your tent for a long time. And he was so right, you know. <laughs> So, Mick, this has been great. Um, how how can listeners reach you if they have any other questions? Um, I have I, uh, the website. I still have the email address. I have the website down at the moment because I, I gave up doing the paddle touring. I have a website, seapaddling.com. So that's S-E-A-P-A-D-D-L-I-N-G.com. But it's down at the moment. I'm just re-looking at it. But they can get me on that email address at info at seapaddling.com. That's the easiest way to get me. All right. Um, one final question that I have for you, Mick. It's a question that I ask all of our guests on the show, and that is, Mick, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? I'll tell you who I've been interested in, and I've come across their website a good few times over the last few years. It's a guy called Mark Sundon, and Mark is in Australia. He runs a business there called um, Expedition Kayaks, and they're over in Sydney there. But he has, you know, if you look at the website there, they're always reviewing boats comparing stuff 
looking at kind of fast sea kayaks, kind of pushing on and, 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 and challenging the norms, I suppose you might say, you know. And they've also, he, he's done, you know, with, with a few of his buddies, done the Bass Strait crossing there between um, Australia there and uh, Tasmania. And so I think he'd be an interesting character. Yeah, he, he'd have a lot of opinions and stuff, and I think he'd be worth a, I think he'd be worth a chat very much so, yeah. That sounds great. I'll have I'll take an opportunity to connect with Mark, and uh, I've yeah. had a previous interview with Bo Miles from Australia, and uh, we'll okay. we'll go back down under and learn a little bit about bit from Mark as well. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mick, I really appreciate your time today. It's been fantastic learning about uh, your personal experiences and your personal background as a paddler, and your experiences uh, on both trips going around Ireland. And, uh, and I love your philosophy on getting to know people um, when they're cold, when they're tired, and, and really making sure that you can be inside your own head for a long period of time. So, Yeah. Okay, thanks, John. Great. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. It was great to have a chance to sit down and talk to Mick. I could chat with him for hours, and you know that it would have been fun to have been part of that session with Mick, Jeff Allen, and Harry Whalen, too. A big thank you goes out to John Willisey from episode 33 for the connection with Mick, so thank you very much, John. So Mick really sets a goal and works hard to make it happen, and he has the results to back it up. Seven times across the Irish Sea, twice around Ireland, and who knows, as he mentioned, there might be a third trip around the island in the making. Mick's a true student of efficiency. He's always training, always ready for whatever may come at him, and with one with the courage, confidence, and competency to reach the goal. Our next episode is going to take us to the U.S., down the Grand Canyon, in a sea kayak, with a Greenland paddle. So don't miss my conversation with James Mankey. Thanks again for listening to Paddling the Blue, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.